I'm ready. Okay. Okay, July 13th at 5.36. And Brenda, roll call, please. Yes. Uh, Loretta Mallon? Here. Niha Banger will not be joining us tonight. Lucia Angel? Here. B. Frank Walker? Here. Here. Richard Harvey? Here. Eric Murphy? Absent. Mark Smith? Um, absent. Khalil Toki will not joining us. Ali Yesin? Absent. Uh, we have a quorum. No, I, we actually need five. We need five? So we need one yeah, more? We have one. So we, yes, yeah, you need one more. Okay, um, I will yeah. try to call Mark, okay? Okay. Yes, this is recording right now. I okay. trying to um share my screen right now. Hold one second. I have some difficulty. Can you see my screen? Very small. Very small? Me. How about now? A little bigger. Bigger? Are you working on your iPad? 
talking to me? Yeah, B, are you working on yeah, the iPad? I'm on my iPad. I'm on my okay. iPad. Um, take your fingers and try to enlarge the screen. Well, I tried enlarge. that earlier. Ah, there I go. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. Can you guys see okay? Yes, ma'am. Okay, great. Okay. All right. Um, welcome, everybody. Um, I don't have anything special to report um, today for um, letter A, so I think we're going to go right ahead and um, do letter B, um, which is the approval of the minutes from June 8th. Can um, I get a motion to approve the minutes? I motion to approve the minutes from um, June 8th. Thank you. I'll second. Thank you, B. Okay. The next thing we have is... I'm sorry, Loretta. Uh, Dr. Yes. Um, yes. Typically, you're supposed to, at this point, ask if there are any changes or comments regarding the minutes, and then oh, yes, if not, yes. okay? Okay, thank you. Yeah. Are there any comments or changes to the minutes? Okay. And then, sorry, one more thing, Lorda, um, and then you would ask at this point for a roll call of yays and nays, just because we're teleconferencing in. Okay. Okay, can I have a roll call? Uh, let's see. E. Francis Walker. Here. And I approve. Yay or? Yeah, yeah, thank you. I approve. Okay. Uh, Lucia? Approve. Richard? Yay. Um, let's see. <laughs> Mark your user one. Mark? Yes. Your user one, yay or nay? To approve the minutes. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> okay. And are there any nay any nays? Okay. So the minutes are approved. Um on letter C, our medical director. Dr. Francis. Thanks, Loretta. Um, I think it's glaringly obvious to everyone today that Heather's not here, but we're making our way <laughs> without her. Um, and I'm very, very proud of that, but also very excited that she's going to eventually come back from vacation. Um, Brenda, can you scroll down? I had um, just one item that I had uh, some visuals to support. Um, just to update you all on governance issues. Um, but before we got to that one, as Brenda's scrolling down to, to that uh, section, um, just a quick update on coronavirus uh, in the pe people experiencing homelessness. We are seeing a, an uptick in the numbers of, um, of uh, outbreaks actually that are happening at shelters in our community and in some cases we have more cases, you know, right now simultaneously in some shelters in our community than we had through the entire pandemic so far. So um, we're really starting to see the fact that our vaccination rates, you know, among people experiencing homelessness in spite of, you know, really heroic efforts, I think, by a lot of community partners. 
partners just um, you know didn't uh, didn't achieve the same levels of protection in the population and um, and then I think the combined effect of the uh, with that of the um, Delta variant and how much more quickly it's spreading in the community. I wish I had more numbers for you specifically around numbers of outbreaks, like what we were reporting earlier in the pandemic. Um, but unfortunately, those reports haven't continued from the county. Um, so I don't, I can't tell you the specific uh, numbers, but I can tell you that, you know, having, having spoken to a couple colleagues there, um, that, uh, that we are seeing an uptick in cases. Luella, I know you're on. I don't know if you wanted to maybe add anything about that uh, briefly. Do you have any more data or information that you would want to share from the county's perspective? Hi, good evening, everyone. Um, this is Luella Pensurga, Deputy Director, Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless. And I don't have much to add at all, Damon. I think you're closer to it. And uh, Lucy is not able to join us this evening. I think you have uh, more of a finger on the pulse of that. Great. So we'll we'll try to figure out. Thanks, Luella. Um, if we can bring more information, you know, I think as you know, again, this is not the trajectory we sort of predicted or wanted. So, um, and it's it's really hot off the press. So hopefully by next meeting we'll have more information about what the response is looking like, um, how we're going to ensure that we ramp up enough isolation and quarantine capacity to support the shelters. I think that's a, that's a challenge given that we've really closed some of that capacity because we haven't mm -hmm. needed it and, and converted it to be um, housing. Now we need to go back to having shorter term isolation and quarantine housing in some of those mm -hmm. units. So um, again, I'll, I'll, I'll do a more formal report next month about this. Um, it's just kind of emerging right now um, so, that, so that we can keep you all aware. Are there any questions or anything that people want to make sure I bring back next month um, just on the topic of coronavirus among people experiencing homelessness? Damon, this is uh, the, our homeless patients received the Johnson & Johnson, correct? Um, people experiencing Most homelessness of them. received all, all different types of vaccines. Uh, oh, okay. Many of the um, clinics that we implemented uh, on the mobile health uh, in the, within the mobile health program did give the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, although across the county people received, you know, Moderna and Johnson & Johnson right. mobile programs, and then many people experiencing homelessness did also go to uh, mass vaccination mm -hmm. sites or other stable site vaccination programs, so many have received Pfizer as well. Um, okay. So all, all three of the approved vaccines have been in use in, in our community among people experiencing homelessness. Um, hi, Damon. This is Mark. Um, just a, a, a kind of a question. Um, were you saying that um, that it is a possibility, or that we should um, reactivate um, what we had early on, which was the um, um, Operation Room Key and those sort of programs, um, in order to curb the variant? Nothing's been deactivated, but the the relative amounts of housing that we were holding to um, to help with virus control, like controlling the transmission of the virus, we were not using as many of the available hotel units to do that as a community because we didn't need it. Early on, when we had very high rates of transmission, we needed places for people to go for one to two weeks 
to um, either isolate them if they were infected with the virus so that they wouldn't spread that on to other people or quarantine them if they were exposed to someone um, who, who was infected with the virus. And so as we needed less of that housing, we were able to convert those rooms um, in some, and convert whole you know, hotels to actually become um, housing for people who were at high risk of bad outcomes if they got exposed to the virus, but who were not themselves either exposed or infected with the virus. So there are these sort of three categories of people, and it's the relative balance of the programs that changed. None of the programs ever closed down, so there's no, there's no change in the programming, but we might have to go back to, you know, the relative amounts of housing um, that look more like, like they looked earlier in the pandemic. I know that's a bit confusing, but hopefully, hopefully that helps clarify a little bit. Um, one other question. Um, is it too early to tell, um, at least from a financial standpoint, the feasibility of, of uh, restart? Um, I, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that I can give you more updates on next, next month. Um, so I will, I'll make sure to include, um, you know, some report out on the financing, um, of, um, of the, the different, the various, you know, isolation and quarantine housing and the, and the, um, and the project room key and home key type housing. Um, so I'll bring that back to you next time. Damon, um, this is Luella. I will say that um, we do still have capacity to vaccinate. It, I think the robust um, discussion we're having right now um, with partners is how do we, you know, work with community members to to get more people to agree to be vaccinated. Um, so I think there's just um, still a lot of uh, uh, discussion and like strategizing that needs to needs to be done. Because uh, we do have capacity to vaccinate more people, um, but they have to be wanting to have the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So I think that's a really important part of the um, of the overall approach. And you know, I'll also I'll also um, try to get you guys some more you know detailed data and information about what's happening with vaccination and uptake and what the strategies are to you know early on. I think. Um, we, we just saw dramatic decreases in the mobile health program as just one example of the vaccination programs. And, you know, when we first went out, there was a lot of uptake and then the drop off was, you know, within a couple of months, we went from several hundred vaccines a month to zero a month uh, or rel relatively close to zero. So a lot of this is how we sort of engage the communities and offer the vaccine in ways that um, make it more attractive uh, for people. Um, Damon, didn't some of the um, hotels closed down. I thought we had talked about that in our last meeting. Yes, there hasn't been an update of the visual, um, but I'll bring that back next time to, to look at the okay. overall total total numbers. But yes, we've had some closures, we've had some shifts, um, we've had mm -hmm. some changes, and, and so I'll, I'll bring that back so you guys can get another detailed look at, at, the, at the relative balance of the types of rooms and then what's also projected to happen. Can you can you open up the uh, medical director report just so I can review the governance um, update?
This is all I have. It's not that it. What's that? That's all I have. Um, it's not it. Uh, oh, I see still the first page of the agenda, but not the attachment. Mm -hmm. The PowerPoint attachment. Oh, okay. Um, let me try something. I'm sorry. Maybe something's wrong with my computer. Hold one second, okay? Okay. Board would become the board of supervisors. 
Um, so these were the two main recommendations by HMA. Um, and then uh, I'm, I'm actually, let's pause here for a second. I, you know, I'm not an expert on this by any means. There's, you know, an hour and 15 minute presentation on it. But um, if anyone has questions here, oh, certainly great. I think it'd be okay to... forward, 
there would be a lot of details like that that, you know, what, what does that exactly mean and how would it be operationalized? Um, so that's, that, that wasn't, you know, specified. Okay. And my, and my last question is um, in terms of uh, what would be the choice of option one or option choice, uh, is there a, uh, was there presented a deadline in which the, the, um, either option would have to be uh, selected? So let's move forward in the presentation, and, and I'll get to that. Um, that's a great question. Um, so, Brenda, can you go to the next slide? Um, so the Alameda County Board of Supervisors has actually extended the timeline for reviewing governance options before proceeding. So um, I don't know if you all recall, but when the last board was um, asked to resign and then the new board of trustees was seated, um, I think the board of supervisors said they were going to review the process and they were going to make a recommend, they were going to make a decision, actually, the board of supervisors would make a decision by March as to how they were going to structure governance going forward. Um, but um, there have been some stakeholders in the process who requested an evaluation of a full return to Alameda County, which was not one of the options that HMA recommended. So um, HMA didn't recommend this option, citing an uncertain time frame, the feasibility of you know the legal, workforce, financial, and operational kind of issues that would have to be dealt with in order to make all of us who are now AHS staff, or at least all of our positions, into you know, full-fledged county positions again and, and mm -hmm. turn the organization back into the county again. Um, but, but that indeed is a process that the Board of Supervisors is now committed to evaluating at least um, because, because they heard, you know, significant uh, feedback from stakeholders that they wanted that option to be evaluated. So Supervisor Valle will be leading the process um, from here. So um, Supervisor Chan led the process up to this point and she'll be handing off to Supervisor Valle to lead the process for reviewing these governance options in more detail and convening stakeholders. Um, and so for us, you can go to the last slide, Brenda. Um, for us as a co-applicant board, um, either option two, which eliminates the Board of Trustees, or a full return to Alameda County could lead to significant transformation or termination of the Board of Trustees in the cab, right? I think option two or return to the county doesn't contemplate the existence of a body that's called the Board of Trustees, you know, it's possible that that body could be utilized in a way other bodies are used in other communities or whatever. It might not be the total dissolution. It might be a transformation of, of that board's responsibilities and composition, et cetera. But certainly, you know, the agreements that we have with the Board of Trustees as a co-applicant board and that the Board of Trustees has with the county, you know, could go away completely under either the second option that HMA presented or the option of a full return to the county. And I think um, this ongoing process is an opportunity for the co-applicant board and other consumer-led groups to engage with Supervisor Valle and other stakeholders. They, the consultation process with HMA consulted over 50 individual stakeholders, only one of which was identified as a consumer. Um, of services, and so I think this this fact that you know Supervisor Valle is opening up an ongoing process uh, to sort of broaden and deepen the stakeholder engagement, I think, is an opportunity for for members of our co-applicant board and for other consumer groups to to actually be more involved in the process than they have been up to this point in time. Uh, Damon, uh, Mark again. One uh, one question: uh, Is there any specific reason? Um, for uh, 
for uh, Wilma Chan uh, handing off this work to Supervisor Valle? Why, why was there a change when uh, basically she started it? I I don't know. Uh, she did. I don't remember her saying anything about that in the in the presentation that she gave with HMA to the Board of Trustees. Um, so I don't I don't want to speculate. Okay.
And I'm Lily McRae. I'm the manager for outpatient care coordination, and that includes complex care, care transitions, and some other projects we're going to talk about today. Um, I am a nurse by training. I also started, I think, the same year that DeAndre started. I started as a care transitions nurse and worked closely with DeAndre um, really over the last eight years together. Um, and we're excited to be here. Thank you. Brenda, would you like me to share my screen and, and our PowerPoint? Are you having trouble finding it? Um, I should just share that you can see it. No, we can just no. see the, um, the memo. <coughs> oh, okay. Got it. Hold on a second. Okay. And I'll just fill in with some, some kind of conversation about this topic, Damon, what Damon talked about with being kindred, kindred spirits and also just sharing sort of principles around caring for our patients. Um, it's been, you know, a challenging year with COVID, but I think one thing that it has illuminated for us is the power of collaboration and just reaching across domains and, mm -hmm. and um, departments really to figure out how we can serve our patients the discussion about the COVID outbreaks escalating again in, in our homeless communities just made, made me have a flashback to those early days and Dan and I being on the phone together figuring out what our referral strategies for the hotels were and it was iterating literally, um, you know, hour by hour it seemed like. Um, so, so I think that was one of the silver linings. And I also just want to say that there are some drum lessons happening downstairs in the place that I'm sitting today. So if you hear the background noise, um, that's what you're hearing. Can you see my share screen? Nope. We can just see the memo. Still? Okay. Sorry. Okay. Brenda, do you want to give Lily the, the screen and let her share their presentation herself. All right. Oh, no. That was my screen. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a up. Oh, there we go. There we go. Thank you, Brenda. So we have a lot of information to talk about, and I really want to leave time to just hear your questions and hear your thoughts and reflections about the work we do. So we'll try to move quickly, um, but you know, please uh, feel free to just stop us and ask questions or see them for the end. Um, so this is this is us, um, our uh, three members of our leadership team, and outpatient care management. Next slide. So the things that we're going to talk about today are complex care management, one of our programs. We provide longitudinal care management for patients experiencing complex barriers. Um, care transitions is our hospital to home program. We'll talk more about that. It's really a 30-day program for more of our rising risk population. We have a pilot that serves people experiencing uh, homelessness called Housing is Healthcare. And then we'll talk a little bit about our frequent utilizer work group. Next slide. Before we talk specifically about our, our programs, I wanted to just talk a little bit about the frame that we use to think about patients at risk and, and what kinds of supports will best benefit them. 
Um, this is uh, something that's common when we think about serving different populations. We have our lower risk pop populations, a lot of patients, and really the standard care impacts outcomes. And then if you move up on that triangle, we have a rising risk uh, population. These are patients who are struggling maybe with some chronic conditions or some social barriers, and they're at risk for moving up into that top area, um, which is the highest risk population. These are patients who are cycling through our hospitals, but not really getting much benefit from that. Um, and then the kinds of services that we like to think about best serving, um, applying for the most high-touch, most specialized care for the patients at the top. And these are teams are coordinating across our continuum and then sort of moving on down, um, really with that rising risk, trying to prevent people from moving up to the top. And on the right, you can see, and this is not meant to be comprehensive, but you can see the different programs at AHS that serve these different populations. I took the liberty of adding mobile health, thinking that mobile health was rising risk and high risk, um, but I could be corrected. Um, and then where you'll see complex care is at the top, and then care transitions in the middle of that rising risk. Next slide. Thanks, Lily. Really. Um, so this slide essentially summarizes our complex care program. Um, complex care is the team that I supervise, um, and we have very specific eligibility criteria for um, patients who we consider high risk and could benefit from more longitudinal um, and intensive case management services. Um, while we are, we consider ourselves kind of a short-term intervention, we're more of a, a long-term intervention as well. It just kind of depends on where the patient is at um, in terms of the amount and um, frequency of services that we provide. Uh, the eligibility criteria we follow is aligned with the health homes criteria that's um, outlined by the health homes program um, by uh, the two major Medi-Cal health plans here in our county. Um, while these cri this criteria is outlined by the health plans, we value ourselves as being uh, paragnostic um, and want to uh, serve the system as a whole and want to help patients that are outside of the managed Medi-Cal plans as well. Um, so the three major eligibility criteria that we go by is uh, our multiple chronic conditions. Um, so Whenever we get a referral, we review the chart to see what kind of medical conditions um, that particular patient has to ensure that they have multiple chronic conditions that we can address and help with. Um, we also look for acute utilization. Um, so right now our criteria focuses on acute utilization within the last 12 months, um, which is a combination of both inpatient admissions as well as ED utilization. Um, and then we also look for some degree of social complexity, some social needs that our team can address um, and help resolve uh, for our patient population. Um, like I mentioned and like Lily mentioned, we're working with the highest risk patient population um, that are high cost, are coming in the hospital very frequently and utilizing multiple systems, not just Highland or any of our Alameda Health System hospitals, but other hospitals um, across the trajectory as well. Um, so we have teams based at Highland, Eastmont, and Hayward Wellness Centers. We have two teams based at Highland right now because that population is a little bit larger um, than our two other wellness centers. 
Um, our teams are made up of nurse case managers, community health outreach workers, um, as well as social workers um, that help support patients based on the needs that they have. Um, our goal is to essentially meet the patient where they're at, um, really do a comprehensive biopsychosocial assessment um, when our patients are first engaged and figure out what their goals are and how we could work together to achieve those goals and overall improve health outcomes and overcome any um, psychosocial barriers that they're facing. Um, we also aim to reduce utilization. As you guys know, sometimes that's not an easy feat. Um, we often see utilization rise um, in the beginning of our intervention, and then as we continue to work with patients, um, we slowly start to reduce that utilization by getting them connected to resources um, and helping them become more independent in managing their health care. Um, we also help with like transitional care support, behavioral health support, housing navigation, um, and referral linkage to other uh, community uh, resources and services as well. Um, current, current state, we have about 142 patients enrolled in our program. Um, each team um, has a capacity depending on the combination of community health outreach workers that are working on that team. Um, the chart um, on the left-hand corner, you can see the lower left-hand corner um, is our current payer mix. Um, so as you can see, 70% of our patients have some type of managed care Medi-Cal plan right now. 15% uh, of our patients are dual eligible, so they have Medicare and Medi-Cal, whether that's fee-for-service or a managed Medi-Cal plan. 10% uh, of our patients have health pack. Um, and 5% of our patients have just standard fee-for-service Medi-Cal. Next slide, please. I'm going to hand it over to Lily to talk about care transitions. Actually, Yandere is going to talk about care transitions. Thanks, I'll talk about, about care transitions. And so care transitions is a 30-day hospital-to-home program for patients that are at risk for readmission. We average about 40 enrollments a week, and we mainly target those rising risk patients, as we talked about earlier, and we're primarily a telephonic intervention. And so our eligibility is based on diagnoses. We uh, enroll folks that uh, suffer from CHF, COPD, diabetes, pneumonia, and cellulitis. Um, our team structure and roles, so our teams are based at Highland, San Leandro, and Alameda Hospitals, and you can see on the chart here at the bottom left that about 50% of our patients are at Highland, about 30% of our patients are at San Leandro, and about 20% of our patients are over at uh, Alameda Hospital. Our teams are made up of uh, RN care managers as well as community health outreach workers. And our RN care managers, their main role is focusing on that reconnection to the medical home, medi medication reconciliations, and uh, chronic disease education and health ma maintenance strategies. Whereas our uh, community health outreach worker is more based on social needs uh, and supports patients and leads them to services, supports, and uh, any other benefits that they may be eligible for. Um, the goals of the, of the Care Transitions Program is to provide a 30-day post-hospital discharge um, intervention and address barriers to care, optimize health outcomes, and provide education that ultimately helps patients feel more comfortable and confident in navigating their care independently, and uh, also to ensure and support a smooth transition to their home environment. Some of those strategies and interventions that we use are we, we uh, 
coordinate with the medical and community providers. We provide health promotion and education, transitional care support, behavioral health support, housing navigation, referrals and linkage to community and supports and social services programs. Uh, next slide, please. Now I'll talk a little bit about our sorry, now I'll talk a little bit about our housing is healthcare program. This is a housing this is a a, a short-term program that's meant for our uh, unstably housed and medically vulnerable patients. And so it's a mix of high and uh, rising risk patients and our team and we ensure linkages to appropriate uh, teams. So our eligibility are for patients that are 65 and older and have a serious chronic condition that puts them at risk for uh, poor health outcomes. A little bit about the funding uh, and the origin and the team structure. So we have whole person care funding for one and a half full-time staff. Um, we're built on the early successes referring patients to safer ground. So early on, as you guys know, we had those safer ground opened up and we, we just wanted to build on the successes we had, you know, referring those patients in and getting them housed. And so currently our team is made up of uh, two community health outreach workers that are helping to support this pilot. And our goal for this program is to serve as, as HS liaisons for community partners to support patients along the continuum to permanent housing. You know, as we know, you know, it can be cumbersome gathering all the documents and all of the things that you may need, that, that some community partners may need to move patients along that continuum. And so we play a really, uh, a really important role in bridging that gap between AHS and the outside community, which, you know, people on the outside have sometimes said that we're really difficult to navigate and really difficult to, you know, to, 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 to retrieve items and documents and things like that. And so we really work to bridge that gap. And so some of our strategies and interventions are we assess the housing status and we refer patients to interim housing programs, such as the Safer Ground Hotels. We directly assist patients with move-ins. We provide light care coordination and housing uh, navigation services. And we identify and link patients to a higher level of care management programs as we see fit. And we ensure a, uh, a seamless uh, transition into those programs if, if they qualify. And uh, so since April 2020, we've served a total of 138 patients that were suffering from housing instability and met the criteria above. And of those patients served, we have 64 uh, interim housing placements since April 2020. And so in a couple of our current partners are a couple of Alameda County programs, the street outreach teams, community-based organizations, the, the uh, AHS emergency departments, uh, ambulatory, as well as care management staff. Next slide, please. And so now we'll talk a little bit about our patients experiencing homelessness within our programs. And so complex care typically has about a 20% 20, 20 of their panel is usually experiencing homelessness at any given time. Currently, there are about 27 patients identified that all moved into interim or permanent housing through that complex care intervention. As far as our care transitions program, it's a little bit lower, so about typically it's about 10% of the panel which is experiencing literal homelessness. And our team builds on inpatient discharge plan to optimize that housing security. So we're constantly reviewing those documents and figuring out how we can insert ourselves and uh, you know help the patient along there. 
And we refer to complex care or any other higher level of support. As I talked about in our previous slide, that's the beautiful thing about all of our programs. You know, if a patient is, you know, at one of our lower touch programs and we see that they benefit from that higher level of service, you know, as Isha said, you know, we try to be pair agnostic. So regardless of if they meet our managed care plan, uh, you know, uh, requirements, we still will bring them in and offer a seamless uh, care experience. So the patient will experience as little turbulence and on their end as possible. We're taking care of everything on the back end. And a little bit about our housing and healthcare program. So we collaborate with Alameda County and City of Oakland to optimize access to evolving services and programs. We're constantly in talks with the county and those other programs on a constant basis to figure out what's going on, how things are changing, so that we can really keep our finger on the pulse, you know, and really be dynamic and uh, meet the needs. And again, we work uh, to identify eligible patients across all of AHS. And lastly, a little bit about our frequent utilizer work group. So 100% of our panel is currently housing insecure. About 50% of them have moved into interim or permanent supportive housing. And cross-sector case conferences and care planning are bridging the historically siloed, you know, domains. As you know, we try, you know, as we said, you know, previously, we try to break down those walls. You know, things are historic, that are historically hard to reach and hard to get into. We try to provide a helping hand to break down those walls and ultimately serve the patient as best as uh, we possibly can. Damon, I see your hand up. Do you have a question? Yeah, I just wanted to ask, um, you know, our scope in the Homeless Health Center includes people who are doubled up, who, you know, usually in the lexicon are not considered, quote, literally homeless. Um, but for, you know, for the purposes of our Homeless Health Center, they are considered homeless. And I was wondering just if you all have a sense in the complex care or care transitions programs, like if we use that broader definition, you know, how much would that, would, how many of those folks would then be included in, in, in um, people you would call, you know, homeless? It's a really good question. Do, Isha, I think you're most in the, in the patient level at this point with complex care. Do you have a sense about patients who are doubled up, couch surfing, insecure? Yeah, I mean, even for, for patients who have been, who reported that they're couch surfing um, or are bouncing from house to house but don't have like a stable permanent residence, we usually work with those patients to figure out a way that we can present them to these different transitional housing programs um, as literally homeless um, and show some type of track record of literal homeless that they've experienced, literal homelessness that they've experienced. For example, if someone just recently couch has started couch surfing, but over the last like 12 months has historically been living in encampments um, or has been living in their car, um, we'll try and work with that definition of, of homelessness um, and try and present them to the different transitional housing sites that way. We try and get creative on how we present patients um, to these different sites to help set up our patients for success as much as possible. I can get back to you about uh, the numbers, Damon, because we do track that as a category and we report that through our health homes reporting. Yeah, I can run those numbers. Great. Next slide, Brent, any other questions so far? 
Great. So um, I want to segue into uh, talking about the frequent utilizer work that we're doing um, right now. Um, so what process, for example, we... Oh, I'm sorry. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Oh, you're kidding. If we have a patient that uses, of course, our goal is to get them to a primary care provider, and then from there, should they happen to become hospitalized uh, and they recover, what happens at that point? Do they go back to the encampment that they started out with, or um, are you guaranteeing that they're going to have transitional housing? It's a really good question, Loretta. So the inpatient teams have temporary housing um, placement options for people who've been in the hospital. Um, and these are very short-term, they provide very short-term vouchers to patients. So if a patient who is experiencing homelessness is hospitalized, they always have the option to discharge to one of these short-term facilities. Um, they are very short-term, and what our team likes to do is build on that. So if someone, so we're not really in charge of the discharge plan from the hospital, but we're going to follow up post-discharge because that could even be as short as three days, and we're going to try to do our housing assessment and see what kind of stability we can impact over time. <laughs> Uh, um, this is this is Mark. Okay. I, I have a kind of a follow-up question, kind of connected to what Loretta was just asking. Uh, just out of curiosity, um, do you ever come across a situation in which uh, a patient uh, who is experiencing homelessness, uh, who you don't really know uh, until they're in the hospital, uh, what their actual med real medical condition is, and it turns out that uh, this person has um, a, a, a medical situation in which they're uh, in which they're, uh, they're they're terminal, meaning that you know that uh, you know they might have uh, an operable brain tumor, or uh, in other words, they're they're terminal. Uh, they're they're eventually going to pass away. Uh, is, is there? Uh, do you have any kind of? Uh, do you have any way of providing uh, any respite care, or does respite care ever come into the picture uh, for your team? Hospice. Yeah. There are a couple of respite um, programs that we refer to from the hospital. One is at Adeline and uh, lifelong staff that there's nursing, but it's short-term, Mark, so it's about six weeks. But there's also housing navigators that are on site there, and then there's uh, medical respite at EOCP. Um, there's a separate unit at the Crossroads Shelter that patients discharge to, but it is short-term, so it's not long-term respite for the situation that you talked about. Uh, um, so if somebody had like a higher level of need and was very, very sick, I could imagine, I think someone said hospice, I can imagine the inpatient discharge planners thinking through a plan that combined hospice, maybe with a skilled nursing facility if they qualified. Um, or potentially the, the medical respite and then kind of figuring out the plan after that. I see. Um, and one other quick question. Um, I, I can't see your slide, so um, so 
Um, I can only go by what was being said because um, I can't oh, see the slide. But but uh, but I heard you. Uh, I heard uh, uh, the phrase social needs or social uh, or or helping them to overcome social barriers. When you say social needs, what specific social needs are you referring to? Yeah, so so when we when we do assessments, and this is all of our teams, um, our typically our outreach workers, but also our nurses are doing uh, screenings and assessments, which are kind of a deeper understanding of what is going on for that patient in terms of their um, social barriers. So we could be asking about housing, food, um, what kind of help they have at home, um, nutrition, transportation, um, help navigating social services. Um, there's, there's many different areas that we assess for, and we're always trying to target that patient. So um, kind of figuring out what is, what is the driver of that patient's utilization or poor health outcomes. I have another question. Um, Louis, where, where does the money come for this? I'm, I'm really, I know um, in the past, people that have been discharged from the hospital have not really had, um, the money has run out for them to, say, be in a hotel for two or three days. Um, so has this been corrected, or do we all of a sudden get a lot of money? <laughs> what happened? Yeah. Well, so the the Alameda Health System is paying for these short-term vouchers, um, and my understanding, and I I am not really um, totally knowledgeable on this, but my understanding of this is us being compliant with a bill that is mandating um, hospitals to ensure that patients um, have an option to have a, a place to discharge as appropriate. Um, uh, so. So we are paying for that, um, and I think it's expensive, but I, mm -hmm. I want to emphasize that these short-term vouchers, while I, it's wonderful that we have this access, they're short-term, um, and we see right. that they're just sort of like these kind of band-aids, and so what, what we're trying to focus on on our teams is really figuring out how to impact stability um, over a longer period of time. Um, in terms of funding from our um, programs, we get money, we, we're funded by AHS through our general budget, and then we also have, we are reimbursed through this program called Help Homes. And later in our presentation, we'll talk a little bit about some future funding strategies um, through CalAIM. So can I and add one more? Go ahead, B. Go ahead. What, what do you do with the people when the money runs out? Where do they go? So I don't have great ways to track where people are if we lose contact with them, um, but people just cycle through where they started from. So either their encampment or they will settle in, in a sheltered environment um, or back on the streets. Um, so we've been pretty impactful to pull the most sort of vulnerable people and provide an opportunity to move into these interim sites that are funded by the city of Oakland and the county. Um, the hotels and the and the different interim sites, and from there they get housing. The, the um, clients are eligible for housing navigation and case management to then move into even one step further of 
permanent housing. Do you, do you work with rehab centers at all? Or um, do you um, discharge any of these patients to, let's say, um, you know, recovery house? For substance use disorder? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because when we think about barriers um, patients face, um, barriers could come in all different um, flavors and, and right. we really try to understand like the root cause of the instability. And so oftentimes that's mm -hmm. substance use disorder. And so for patients who are interested in reducing or stopping, absolutely we will help navigate that process um, to um, get us, um, you know, assessed for, for treatment. Uh, and sometimes that means um, uh, residential treatment and sometimes that means uh, like day treatment. Yeah. And is that, I think that the number of patients that you said you have right now, to me that seems low. Is that because not everybody is choosing to um, to work with your program? Is that why? And yeah. they choose to go back to, to yeah. the encampment or whatever? Yeah, um, it's a combination of our capacity as a team and our staffing and then and patient engagement. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this is Mark again. I just have uh, another question. Um, in regards to uh, all, all your separate teams that are involved, you have several teams. Uh, as, as I understand, you have several teams, and I'm just wondering um, um, when, when and how often do uh, the teams um, collectively come together to compare notes uh, and, uh, and, and generally uh, uh, share anecdotal information that might be um, helpful to any, any given team member or any given team that's uh, involved in this work. Do you want to take that, Isha? Yeah, so all of our teams, our housing is healthcare team, complex care, care transitions, um, we're, we're talking almost on a weekly, sometimes even daily basis um, with each other. Uh, we have weekly standing meetings where we like cross collaborate with each other. Um, and a lot of the times our patients kind of move through the trajectory of each program, like they may start with care transitions, get transitioned to complex care, work also with our housing as healthcare community health outreach workers. So all of our programs are kind of intertwined. So we're, we're working collaboratively on a daily, weekly basis um, to make sure we're sharing stories and are all on the same page. We also uh, host a series that we call Community Health Learning Sessions. Sorry for the background noise, I'm not sure if you can hear that. Um, <laughs> Um, and these are trainings for people who are serving our patients across the system. So it's outreach workers and nurses and other other folks providing work, um, providing support to people in the community. And these are like skills, knowledge, um, and strategies to, to understand our population and to serve serve our patients better. And those happen twice a month. And as our patients are kind of cycling through various systems, we have tracking tools that we're using to 
identify where a patient is at if they're admitted in the emergency room, um, at an outside hospital, um, and if they're assigned to our programs, we're actively outreaching to them wherever they're at to get them connected and provide support. Um, this is Mark again. Um, I'm wondering, um, do you guys receive any, um, aside from any funding that might actually come from AHS, uh, it has, is there any um, is there any effort to possibly uh, write or to seek out uh, any um, uh, grants, community grants, uh, public private sector grants, uh, any any of that sort of thing in terms of overall funding um, for 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 your program? Definitely, there's that opportunity, and I look forward to kind of thinking through um, some opportunities with our foundation. Um, we've been developing some kind of deeper relationships with AHS Foundation, so I'm hopeful in the future we can think about some, some, some potential um, directions. I think that one, one thing that we really want to focus on is making sure that we have a strategy and so that for any grant or opportunity like that, we wanted to fit into a strategy that we've developed together so that we know that our roadmap is there and we're not going in all these different directions that are determined by funding only. Because we want to make sure that we're, we're staying focused to what we um, are setting out to do. Your questions are so wonderful. I really appreciate them. Thank you. Uh, we have a few more slides. Do we have time to continue through the deck? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do. Okay. okay. We'll try to be quick. Yes, try to be as quick as possible with the next couple of slides. So I wanted to introduce our frequent utilizer work group work um, to this group um, and talk to you guys a little bit about the work that we're doing with our frequent utilizing patient population here um, at Alameda Health System. Um, by frequent utilizing population, I'm talking about patients that are coming to our emergency room um, as well as being admitted frequently due mm -hmm. to chronic medical conditions or um, serious mental illnesses or any other issue that may bring them to the hospital. Um, we definitely realize that this is a gap here at AHS, um, and we're trying to do our best to fill this gap with the re existing resources we have with um, our current teams, um, but this is definitely a problem that's also recognized across the country um, and has really been highlighted by organizations such as the Camden Coalition um, about folks coming into the hospital pretty frequently and how we can kind of interrupt the cycle. Next slide, please. Um, so just to kind of summarize the work we're doing, um, our work is twofold. Um, we're doing work at both the patient level and system level. Um, I want to kind of emphasize my point again that we're pulling resources from our existing programs. So essentially, Lily and I are co-leading um, this work group uh, that meets every month um, and brings together various disciplines to discuss strategies on how we can interrupt the cycle of frequent utilization. Um, we are working towards developing a process um, to have care plans for our patients that are frequenting the system, um, as well as doing like case conferences uh, across different systems to strategize on how we could reduce utilization and get patients better connected. 
Um, on the system level, by the work that we're doing, we hope to show um, that there is a need for this work um, and, in sense, and, in essence, increase our capacity to meet these needs of patients with frequent utilization patterns and complex needs. Um, we're also trying to come to like an agreement on the prioritization, resource allocation, and universal deployment of interventions across the system. So coming up with like an inventory of what are some interventions that we could do as a system consistently for this patient population um, and eventually cause a culture shift here at AHS um, to better serve this population. Next slide, please. Um, so I really want to highlight uh, one of the patients that we've been working with um, pretty closely in our frequent utilizer work group. This patient is also enrolled in our complex care program. Um, so he came to our table in January um, when he was admitted here at Highland and had a very long um, hospitalization, was here for about 112 days. Um, and our team was actually, our complex care team was actually asked to kind of convene an initial case conference to strategize on um, ways to help this particular patient. Um, through the work uh, we, and through hearing other people's stories on working with this patient population, we've heard a lot of people use the words, um, you often feel alone on an island when you're working with a patient or a family that needs so much help but you're feeling helpless because you don't know what resources and what avenues to connect them to. Um, but in really doing a deep dive with our frequent utilizer work group, getting this patient engaged in our complex care program, we were able to kind of help kind of explode the system that he that is involved with him. So originally, he it was just him and his dad alone on an island, um, and eventually through care planning, case conferencing, a lot of out-of-the-box thinking, we were able to get him connected to various services. Um, this this uh, patient was homeless before he came to us, um, didn't have a dialysis chair because of a history of non-compliance. It was essentially coming to the emergency room mm -hmm. multiple times a week uh, just to receive dialysis services, um, had a history of traumatic brain injury and substance use that was causing a lot of stigma to appear in his chart and causing a lot of burnout in our emergency room. Um, but through our interventions, he is going to be starting outpatient dialysis um, and be getting home hemodialysis at his newly um, placed secure housing um, through Safer Ground um, at the end of this month. Uh, so we've been able to really kind of expand the network for him. Um, and really highlight all of his needs um, and get him the care that he needs. That's wonderful. Yeah. It has to be exciting for you. Very exciting. Yeah. This is the work that really energizes me, so I get so excited to talk about it. I know, and I get so excited to see it and hear you talk about it. It's wonderful. Next slide, please. Um, so this is just kind of the preliminary data that we've come up with for our frequent utilizer work group. As I said, we just started in January, so We've only been around for about six or seven months. Um, before our work group, so before we started our interventions with care planning um, and case conferencing for our patient panel, 100% of our patients um, were experiencing some level of housing instability. Most of them um, met the definition of literal homelessness. Um, but after our interventions and after our, our case conferencing and care planning and getting folks connected to the right program at the right time, um, 
half of our patients are now stably housed or in some type of transitional housing program that's going to provide some type of stable housing in the future. Um, so we really are proud of that statistic um, and are hoping to make an impact on a broader uh, patient range depending on the resources that we get in the future. Um, the graph, the funnel graph on the bottom left corner shows our utilization diagnoses. Um, so we have a lot, we see a lot of patients with heart failure, end-stage renal disease, um, serious mental illness. Um, we have one patient with pressure ulcers on our panel right now. Um, the graph on the right-hand corner shows um, the ED and inpatient utilization across systems, so not just AHS, but outside of AHS, for our current patient panel. Um, and I would like to emphasize our current patient panel is continuing to grow. We continue to get referrals um, from the emergency room of patients that are popping up pretty frequently and are asked to kind of step in to help strategize on ways to reduce that utilization and do some case conferencing. Um, as you guys can see, our two highest utilizing patients right now uh, both ha are utilizing because of some type of behavioral health concern and behavioral health diagnosis. We've noticed this is a huge gap, not only at AHS, but across all of Alameda County. Um, so we're strategizing and partnering up with community organizations to figure out how to address these patients. And I've actually been able to connect them to some really good resources in the community um, and are trying to uh, problem solve some more. Next slide, please. So I just wanted you to see who our, our teams are. These, this is our team um, for complex care. Pictures are really important to me just because it just really conveys. And Mark, you can't see our pictures. Hopefully you can see the, the deck another time. but. Um, these are our teams um, providing complex care management, outreach workers and nurses and social workers. Um, it's a really strong team and I'm, I'm so proud of, of how far we've come together. Um, next slide. And this is, this is care transition. So again, nurses and outreach workers and our, our housing pilot team. Um, so you can see we have a teamlet who serves our Highland patients and our, a teamlet that serves our community hospitals. Next slide. So I want to um, actually just pause for a moment because I want to sort of future, future trip with you guys for a minute, but just stop for a moment to hear if you have any additional questions about our current state, our programs, and the work that we do. What are your main um, uh, areas of difficulty in having this plan work? You know, what what is it that you're short of? Is it the financially, or is is it um, program wise, or you know? Yeah, I actually have a slide about gaps and opportunities. Um, maybe. Maybe, Loretta, can I just quickly talk about Cal Ames? Yes. We'll come back to that because I, I want sure, to, to guide that conversation. Um, so Cal AIM is, um, you may have heard about this, is a, is a delivery system program and payment reform um, from the state level across California um, uh, impacting Medi-Cal. And the idea of Cal AIM is to really use it, use Medi-Cal as a tool to address 
the things that we're talking about today, the complex challenges that our vulnerable patients are facing. And there's a real focus on non-clinical strategies um, and social determinants of health. Um, so the social conditions our patients live in um, and focusing on, on fo uh, reducing disparities and inequities. Um, this, the initial um, efforts will start to roll out January 2022. Next slide, Brenda. So there's a, many different aspects to CalAIM, and I'm going to talk about one um, in particular called enhanced care management. So as Isha mentioned in her, in her discussion of complex care, one of our funding um, strategies for, for complex care is the Help Homes program, which is a pilot program where care management is reimbursable for a certain population of patients, and that's managed by the, the health plans. Um, and you can see here there's some eligibility on the left. It's like a chronic condition plus utilization plus social complexity um, criteria. So enhanced care management is going, that's going to sunset at the end of this calendar year, and enhanced care management is going to replace health homes. There are several populations of focus um, that will be um, providing care management, and it's a covered benefit. And, and it's really um, monumental to think about care management and non-traditional um, supports for patients to be covered by the health plan. So it's similar to like if you, you know, have an accident and you break your leg and then you go to the hospital and you get your leg treated, this is also, people are entitled to this as, um, in the same way. Um, so it's going to build and expand on health homes and whole person care um, in these three areas. So one area is um, adults with serious mental illness and substance use disorder. One area is this frequent utilizer population um, that we were discussing earlier. And then one is individuals and families experiencing homelessness. So this, this group, I wanted you to understand because it really impacts this, this population um, because people who have that HUD homeless um, experience plus some kind of complex bio, um, bio or psycho need, um, sort of like a chronic condition or a developmental condition or, um, psychiatric condition that's a barrier, they're entitled to these care management services. And so we will be providing this care uh, to patients. Next slide, unless there's any questions. Well, uh, I, I do only, uh, this is Mark again. Um, yeah. yeah. And that Cal-AIM um, issue you're, you're referring to, uh, I myself just recently received some um, some uh, literature on, on on this proposed program, um, although uh, it wasn't clear to me exactly uh, what it all entails. But uh, you know, um, I I myself personally, um, given my health profile, my personal health profile, um, I would call myself a, a pr pretty a pretty frequent use of hospitals, or uh, certainly. Uh, certainly a, doc, a lot of doctor visits uh, because of chronic issues. Uh, yeah. Would it, uh, the Cal-AIM is only for a specific group of people who are yeah. frequent or is it across the board? If you're simply, yeah. if you're simply, if you're not a homeless person, um, but you are a frequent um, user of hospitals or or because of chronic conditions, uh, would Cal-AIM, uh, would it apply to you or only applying to 
uh, people who are in the uh, who are in the worst straits, which are people who are unhoused and so on. Yeah. So so CalAIM has several different strategies and programs that it will encompass. One of them is this this um, care management um, benefit called enhanced care management, and that's what we will be providing. And I think if I understand your question is who will be able to take advantage of those care management services. And the idea is to really understand who is having the most challenges navigating the system. So it's not just people with some kind of um, burden of chronic conditions. It's people who may have uh, challenges because they're experiencing homelessness or there's a substance use um, disorder or some kind of untreated um, mental health condition um, and so on. So it's, it's risk factors that put somebody um, in a situation where it would be difficult to get the care that they need. So your question is with somebody who just has a collection of chronic conditions, who needs to go to the doctor all the time to get their, their to get care, would they qualify on, on their own? And the answer is no. Um, there would be, have to be some other kind of barrier that makes that navigation piece challenging. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. Good. Um, so really quickly, Loretta, your question about gaps and opportunities. I think um, some, of the, some of the challenges that we face, um, one is that for our complex care teams, we are not in, our, in the ambulatory um, uh, department. And so what, what we see is we need better integration into, into ambulatory care because that's where we want patients to um, connect with, engage, and essentially, you know, get their, their, their care moving forward. So we, we see a, a need for, for better integration into ambulatory. Um, for care transitions, it's really we need better alignment with inpatient teams, um, optimizing that discharge plan. We could get better at patient identification. We've gotten really good at it in this last year or two, um, but we can get better at making sure that the patient, the right patient gets in the hands of the right team. We want patients, and we talked about the fluidity of our team um, and the ability to have sort of warm handoffs within our teams, but ideally we want that patient to experience as little transitions as possible. So if we can identify somebody who would benefit for the right kind of what I think of as the dose of intervention from our team, um, we want that. And then um, in terms of the, our, I think our one of our biggest pain points is our um, data needs. There's complex reporting requirements. We um, have a need for operational reports and analytic reports to help us kind of think about our program design, um, and we're, we're struggling with that. Okay. And then in terms Thank of you. our program, you're welcome. And in terms of our program, I think um, I didn't even put it on this slide, and, and I think that just shows you that um, we all, all just kind of accepted the current state, which is that there's just not enough housing for our patients, um, mm-hmm. and, and that would be... Um, probably above all is, is like the tangible resources of housing and housing um, sec- uh, in programs that help people stay in housing. Right. Thanks, fine. Um, just a quick question. You're just looking at your, you said data needs are 
kind of one of your gaps. Um, are you guys on Epic along with like the rest of the health system, or is it, is it just like the analyst kind of need? Yeah, yeah. No, we 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 document in Epic, and we um, benefit from that for sure. Um, and we um, we could have a more, I think, like optimized build within Epic, um, but but we are on Epic. And we'll, we're going to use this opportunity to, to to this ECM program. We'll use that as an opportunity to um, optimize some of, some of these kind of data needs in, in our Epic build. So our next steps, um, and I, I'm not going to read all the words on this slide. There's a lot of words, but really how I see it and how what we've been talking about a lot is kind of three main areas. Um, one is we need as a system a comprehensive approach to addressing social needs across our system. We have many different teams, many different people doing incredible work um, providing uh, resources to our patients, and we need to have um, a more streamlined continuum so our patients don't experience um, sort of gaps or overlap. Um, we need to expand our capacity to serve these new populations of focus um, that Enhanced Care Management and CalAIM is providing us um, next year. And Damon talked about it in the beginning of, of our presentation is what are the opportunities to partner with you all, um, Mobile Health, um, this group, and other people within our system to really take advantage of this opportunity and serve our patients better. And then three, two, and this is a sort of tangible step, is how can we develop a specialized team to focus even on the very top of that triangle, um, people who are utilizing the system even more frequently than our typical frequent utilizers, people who are experiencing um, homelessness and um, marginalized um, and so have not yet had the opportunities to connect with um, eligible services. And that's where I see our next steps. You can go to the next slide, Brenda. What questions do you have? my contact information and, and DeAndre's information and Isha's information. So, um, you know, if you have a question and you're interested in learning more, we invite, invite um, your calls or emails. And we would love to return and hear more about the work you all are doing. Lily, I just want to say it's even looking at the photo of everyone and knowing how dedicated each of them are uh, having met most of that staff and working with you and deandre you know over the last several years this was really i really enjoyed this presentation thank you 
and I look forward to see where we're going from here. You know, I I hope we do get to collaborate a lot more. Thank you, Wanda. Thank you. Thanks, Wanda. Thank you. I second that. It was a wonderful presentation. It was. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Your words, your words mean a lot, and we look forward to future partnerships. Uh, it's exciting to be able to step outside of the work um, to talk about it. Uh, very exciting. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Please feel free to stay. I saw DeAndre just jumped off, but uh, I think the next segment will be mm -hmm. relevant to you all as well if, you, if you're interested. And I also understand if it's like time to go do something else. <laughs> all right, you guys. I have another appointment I need to run to, but it was lovely meeting you guys. I'm fairly new to AHS, so it's good to put faces to names. So nice to meet everyone here. Thank you for having me. You too. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you so much. I'm going to stick around a bit. Thanks for the invitation. Okay. Um, the next item is um, the strategic planning. We talked a little bit about that last time. And I guess, Damon, you're going to fill us in on some things. Yes. Yeah, so this is. Um you know, um, the last segment was actually part of our strategic planning process. So I think you heard Lily in response to a couple of questions, you know, around gaps and um, to Mark's question, you know, around um, uh, funding um, and particularly philanthropic funding, needing to think through what is, you know, what's the strategy to do that. And so absolutely part of our strategic planning process is inviting these other programs, which again, even though they're not explicitly or formally part of the Homeless Health Center scope, are absolutely critical to our strategic planning process. So I definitely see the last agenda item as being relevant to our strategic planning process, but then this is our you know, formal strategic planning item for this meeting. And this is kind of marching us through the, um, the, the plan that we, the month by month plan that we had. So Brenda, can you go to that, um, that slide and just show where we are? Great, thank you. Um, so um, you can see in June, we, we started with our overview of the process and we reviewed our health center mission. We got some feedback on that. We'll be bringing that you know, back to you all as part of the, um, the, you know, the draft document. Um, and then this month, um, our um, plan is to review the most recent needs assessment and to review um, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats analysis that I gave, um, I believe in October of 2020 to the co-applicant board. Um, and then we have an action item today, which is to nominate a retreat planning task force. So if you all remember in September, where um, we set mm -hmm. a specific date um, to actually have a, um, a retreat that includes draft goal setting and some strategy development um, for um, more that will then go into, you know, developing the document that we need to develop. And so what I was hoping to do today was to, at the beginning of this segment, um, nominate the retreat planning task force, um, and then to and then to go backwards and do the needs assessment and the SWOT analysis. So the task force really, I envision just um, meeting with Heather and myself um, for um, one meeting, 
um, to really help make an agenda for the board retreat that is going to be meaningful to the rest of the board members and, you know, maximally draw on your wisdom and experience um, to guide the strategy of the center. So it's not, you know, I'm not envisioning a huge commitment. I think it'll be reviewing some documents and then having a single meeting. And then that will be the only, the only task that the, you know, that the task force needs to complete and it will dissolve after that. But we really wanted to give people an opportunity to formally step into the role of helping us think through um, that retreat. So I was hoping maybe Kayla could guide us through a nomination process. Um, the other consideration is if we had more than four members on the retreat planning task force, that would become uh, you know, a meeting that would then have to be Brown Act compliant. And I think we're hoping to just, you know, do doodle polls and kind of keep it easy to participate. So we were definitely envisioning, you know, something between two and four people um, on this on this task force. But um, I was hoping Kayla could kind of help us with the process of just getting the nominations done for anyone who's interested, um, and then we can move to the second, uh, the, the second, the second and third sub elements of this uh, bullet. So Kayla, can you uh, can you kind of recommend a process from here for us? Yeah, sure. I think well, you've already said that you would be on that along with Heather. I think if anyone was interested in volunteering, up to two people, unless you wanted to go beyond the four for the ad hoc committee, um, we could just gather those names and you can make a motion for you, Heather, and the one or two people. Oh, um, so Heather and I count toward the, toward the people count? Yes, you would count towards the people count. Uh, Heather's not an ex officio member of the board. Does that matter? Even though I am. Hmm, good point. Um, okay, Heather won't count. I'm, I would caution having you there, but you're not a voting member. So I think you could have three other members besides you and Heather. Okay. Good point, thank you. So I guess uh, if you want to open that to anyone that might be interested and then. So this, this item here is different from the one we spoke about in for September, correct? September, okay. I think 20. This action item 20. is nominate a group to plan the meeting that the entire board will be at in September. So we just ah, get a few you. people that are going to meet, you know, later this month, early August, um, to and do some conversation via email to figure out what that agenda is going to look like for when we bring the whole board together and make sure we're using the time well. Mm -hmm. I would potentially be interested depending on the timeline. It's no depending upon the members. So I think, you know, anyone who's interested, we'd love to take advantage of your interest. <laughs> we'll bend over backwards to, you know, make it easy for you. Well, I'll, I'm interested as well. Is that Richard? Yes. Oh, great. Damien, can I just say, I, I can, I honestly just time looking at my commitments for the next few weeks, um, I can probably only be interested if I can, if the meeting would happen or if the, most of the communication would happen after the 16th of August. So if that's too late, um, let me know. I don't think so, because our, our retreat is at the end of September, like late September. Mm -hmm. So I think mm -hmm. that will be okay. And we can probably make use of the time ahead of time 
to, um, you know, uh, prepare for the pre preparation. So I think okay. that would be fine. So maybe, Kayla, is it time to entertain a motion? We have two people interested. I think that would be great. I don't know. Yes, if someone wants to make a first motion, um, Damon can't, but if someone else would like to make a first motion to nominate um, Richard and Lucia for the task force. I'll nominate Richard and Lucia for the task force. This is B. And I second the motion. And now, Madam Chair, it would go to a vote where we would do roll call. Okay. <clears throat> oh. Okay. Um, one second. Okay. B? I nominate. Yeah, your name. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Okay. Okay, Mark, your user one. Okay, Mark? Yes. Okay. Damon, you can't vote, correct? Correct. Okay. And the next caller in, I'm not sure who that is. It would just be, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, it would just be um, board members that are doing roll call for this. Yeah, I'm just, I'm not sure. Or you're looking uh, at the Zoom screen, I see. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah. So I'm not sure if who the um, 800 number or the 800 at the end is. Oh, that's me. That's oh, me, Brenda. Okay, Brenda. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. And the nominees can also vote, correct? Yes, that's fine. Okay. Richard? Yes. Richard? Okay. Yay. And Lucia? Yes. Okay. Are there any nays? Okay, and I move to approve the action item of nominating Lucia and Richard for the strategic planning retreat meeting. Fantastic. So Heather <laughs> and I will reach out to um, Lucia and Richard and, and just coordinate offline. And um, and I'm really excited to move forward with that item. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, great. So um, now I'm super, super excited to um, introduce Wanda Johnson, who is, um, I think, known to all of you. Um, she's our fantabulous nurse practitioner on uh, the mobile health van. But um, just one anecdote and, and then one other brag on Wanda before I let her um, take over. So uh, early mm -hmm. in the pandemic, uh, there was a big struggle at one of the shelters in our community and the director of um, of uh, Healthcare for the Homeless called me and said, I need help. And I said, oh, I can come. She's like, no, I need Wanda. I was like, well, I can, I can come. I'm, I'm, I can be there. And she's like, no, just send Wanda. Um, and so Wanda went and all was amazing. Everyone calmed down. Everyone saw Wanda. The whole world fell into order again. And, you know, this was one of these mass moves we were doing from the shelter to safer ground. And, um, it was really, it was really just uh, fantastic. I think Lucy did end up calling me back and say, "We need some more gloves." And I said, "I can definitely bring gloves, Lucy." Um, <laughs> so Wanda calmed, calmed the scene, did all the work, and I brought the gloves. Um, but it's just, you know, a measure of how beloved she is in our community. 
But I think in addition to that, you know, Wanda's really growing into uh, a, a really um, incredible scholar of uh, homelessness mm-hmm. and homeless health care and has recently completed a doctorate um, in, uh, in a program at, at um, Cal State Fresno um, where she did, uh, you know, a really amazing research project on um, people experiencing homelessness, really leveraging um, qualitative research methods and her relationships in our community here to, I think, develop some some interesting insights. So I asked Wanda to just help us review the needs from recent reports in our community and kind of add some of her own experience into that and, and present today mm-hmm. to you all. Um, really, you know, just kind of a review of our needs assessment um, from, from her kind of, you know, irreplaceable and inimitable perspective. So Wanda, please take mm-hmm. it away. I don't know how to proceed after that, Damon. <laughs> I appreciate the, the introduction. So, uh, hi, everyone. I am Wanda Johnson. I did just in the last couple of months receive my doctorate in nursing practice, and Damon was one of my preceptors and mentors that really helped facilitate that, that stretch to the end goal, and I have my hats off to you for helping me do that. Um, I have been with Mobile Health Clinic for probably six years now. Uh, we've been back on the road. We've done some black bag. We've been on the RV, but we've done quite a few things. And more recently, and I say, again, thanks, Damon, for helping this happen, is we saw the need for primary care providers uh, with the homeless population so they can get into a brick-and-mortar kind of a place. Right. And we were able to do that. So now on Thursdays, I'm doing that as well. So all to kind of support our people experiencing homelessness. Um, next slide, Brenda. So we do want to kind of understand a little bit of what's going on out there. And I know you guys know. You probably know better than I do. And we're, we all have our bits and pieces to this, to this whole um, pie, so mm-hmm. to speak. And so the background is that, you know, there's medical health, behavioral health, uh, Lily and her team talked about the social determinants of health is where someone lives, um, what background they have, what's available to them as far as social supports and things like that. We also know that there's generational type of uh, racial disparities that have put people in a less than favorable position to really help maintain housing sometimes. And then also the funding and the grants that um, were just presented or discussed in the last presentation, the delivery modes, regulation, limitations, some things have helped us more recently. I mean, I don't even want to say it this way, but with uh, the Corona Relief Act, after you know mm-hmm. such a devastating um, um, event to our whole population, uh, it did at least cut some of the red tape or shorten it so that we got some things done a little more quickly, uh, the operation room keys and things like that. So, um, yeah, to understand what we have now uh, and what has been happening sort of takes us to, well, what sort of caused a lot of this in the first place and the racial disparities, social health, uh, social determinants of health, and um, medical versus behavioral uh, or is it together? You know, is it the hip bone connected too? Because one begets the other. So next slide, please. So a lot of the cause is, I mean, we initially, most people will think it's drugs, it's alcohol, it's mental health. But you can see here that from the information from the street team, um, 
42% of it is really a loss of a job and economic issues. And um, at the lower end, there are the evictions. But then again, you know, that can depend on a lot of the other things that are just up above. If someone lost their job, if there is drugs and alcohol involved, divorce, separation. I have a story of a gentleman who was divorced, still working, but felt very depressed after his divorce, lost his housing, and was able to pick himself up through the help of EOCP, um, the crossword, Crossroads um, uh, Shelter. But um, sometimes, a question there? No, no. Okay. And sometimes family members um, just kind of say, you know, you've been living on my couch for a little bit too long, and they do ask someone to leave. And 10% are in mental health or physical health issues that um, may bring someone to that um, homeless situation. Um, and as Lily had mentioned, you know, there's so many flavors of what can happen that um, can cause that um, sort of end result. I think everyone was a little busy, you know, otherwise. Uh, so 
we I did in looking at this, the focus does come down to the physical health needs, including the dental needs. Uh, you think about all the bacteria in the mouth, and if there isn't um, an adequate screening or, or um, um, type of routine, that bacteria is just it inhabits other parts of the GI system and uh, can cause problems. Behavioral health needs, including substance abuse, are another thing that we really need to focus on. Next slide, please. Thinking then about, you know, as those things can affect someone, and as I said before, the hip bones connected. You know, it's like if we're thinking about oral health, you, we have to think about GI health all the way through and what's absorbed. If we think also about behavioral health, mental health, how that can affect someone's social aspect, and that social aspect, is that then going to make them even less apt to get the medical help that they need? So we need to look at, as uh, also discussed in the previous uh, presentation, the whole person, uh, and that's really important to help us to understand what we can put together and how we can focus this a little bit better. Looking at this slide, um, and I didn't put on here, and I apologize for that, but those numbers that you see in the blue and orange box, those are years. So in 2009, the blue box there, you see the people experiencing homelessness, life expectancy of 57 and a half years. But the general population, life expectancy of 75 years of age. So we move forward a decade and it dropped in the pub, uh, people experiencing homelessness to 50 years of age. They lost about eight years of a life expectancy, while in the general population, it gained another three years there, four years almost, 78.8 uh, years of life. So again, that's just to say there's some work that needs to be done and this is um, where we stand at this point. Next slide, please. So looking again at physical health, um, I, I chose a little, um, I've been also a wound care specialist. So some of the things that I think about, you know, oh. that uh, <laughs> our skin is the largest organ of our body. And that always kind of brings me to looking at if something affects our skin, it's going to affect all of us. And of course, mm -hmm. the environment definitely affects the skin as our first line of defense. So anything irritating the skin and can cause a disturbance within that uh, the community of people experiencing homelessness and cause a little more detriment to the cardiovascular system, uh, respiratory system, musculoskeletal, all of it is uh, affected with these uh, the stress of the environment on the skin itself. Um, it, well, I think that speaks for itself. Um, any questions about that one, about this slide? No? Okay. Next slide, please. So um, behavioral health is another issue as we talked about in that um, other uh, area, uh, in the other slide of how much mental health causes um, homelessness. It's about 10% of the cause of homelessness and drug and alcohol being about 20%. That that's another need that seems to be uh, pretty high on the list and of high risk still to focus on. Um, there are a few programs for those that have just been 
released from uh, incarceration that may be apt to return to some behaviors of mental health or drug use, not mental health, I'm sorry, alcohol or drug use. Um, and so those programs that are available, such, I mean, we have several in the area and I won't name all of them, but City Team is one, Cronin House another, that really help to support um, this population. So uh, we can, I think, do just a little bit better in even incorporating these in some of the other shelter programs that we have. But that I'm trying to focus on the needs and we'll, we'll talk about the plans um, later, I'm sure, as you guys do your um, more in-depth strategic planning. So next slide, please. So, um, and as I mentioned, dental health, if we think about all the things that can happen um, abnormally or anomalies that can happen from poor dentition, as they call it. Uh, severe disease can cause oral pain. We know with pain there can be depression. Again, hip bone connected, you know, that whole person care of if you aren't able to take care of pain, you're not going to sleep well and you're going to have a little bad breath. Uh, that's what halitosis is. And that's going to affect your the social aspects. You're not going to be able to talk to someone eye to eye or in that close proximity that makes us feel um, really connected to other people because of some of these things. If you're not getting enough sleep, are you going to then be able to um, go on with your day and prioritize the next day when you just were not very comfortable? Or in going into an office, are you, it, you, you know, apt to feel a little more uncomfortable to talk to someone, your hand over your face? I mean, right now, we do have the luxury, so to speak, of wearing a mask so that some people don't feel as mm -hmm. uncomfortable, but it's still an issue. So the pain, the loss of sleep, the, the odiferous <laughs> breath um, does affect the social and physical um, behaviors of, um, of people. And we do find that uh, the number one issue with people experiencing homelessness that are 50 years of age or over is dental, are dental issues. Um, and 62% of the adults within this population are affected. Often um, the cost, and I think this is true for the general population and more so for mm -hmm. the people experiencing homelessness, the reason for not visiting a dentist is the cost. Pain, yes, is associated, and we probably all have that little bit of post-traumatic stress from visiting the dentist ourselves, but um, the, the primary reason is the cost. and. So we need to really look at that and see how we can bring that cost down. Um, next slide, please. So here I just wanted to sort of show the difference between, and again, Lily and her team talked about housing, um, how housing is home, <laughs> housing is healthcare and healthcare is housing. Um, and that's something that the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council considers uh, a really important aspect that, you know, when you are housed, you your health care is just that much more supported. And looking at this comparison, diabetes is double. Uh, so 9% for those are ha that are housed and 18% for a homeless individual. Uh, the other one, a lot of these you can see are almost doubled. It's striking. Hypertension, 29% for the housed and 50% for those that are uh, people 
experiencing homelessness. The other ones that I think are really, really significant here is you see HIV and hepatitis C for the house, 1%, and we're looking at 20 and 36% respectively for HIV and uh, hepatitis C there. And depression, of course. You know, you put someone in a situation of almost hopelessness, there's going to be a significant difference. So the house, 8% and 49% for those that are um, unhoused. Um, and substance abuse also, uh, 16 and 58% in comparison. Um, next slide, please. And so um, priority, prioritizing um, what we can do or what we see as those needs. That holistic approach, uh, and I continue to say, I mean, and every the hip bones connected to. I often tell the patient that, you know, you can start out with a fractured baby toe, and because of that, you're walking a little different in your ankle. You're stretching the tendon, so now your back is starting to hurt, and then the back aches. You compensate and you, you know, lift the shoulder one way or another, and eventually you have a headache from the one issue that started down at the ground level, you know? Um, so same thing can happen, uh, especially in the homeless situation with someone with improper shoes and that sort of thing. So um, looking holistically at the whole person, whether we take care of their oral health, their physical health, their social health, we need to not look at just one, but see it as a whole. So um, maybe considering expansion of um, the services that we do currently provide, and I think looking forward, uh, lowering some of those barriers of those social needs and looking at not really racial um, equality, but inequities, you know, some people do need that taller stool to get to that next level um, than others may need. Uh, next slide, please. Um, any questions, suggestions? Quiet eye. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, next slide, Brenda. Thank you. So just to summarize that um, there's the physical aspect and the harshness of temperatures and how it can affect uh, and become a stress irritation of the skin, affecting circulatory system, affecting intestinal respiratory system. Uh, behavioral, that also can cycle back into physical, um, but the depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, uh, fear I didn't add here, but uh, domestic violence is another consideration and, and, and serious issue. Uh, and those self-medicating. Uh, one of the things mm -hmm. I'll just mention from the um, the study that I did is there are people that self-medicate with illicit drugs, but sometimes within the, the homeless population, excuse me, they share their medication. Uh, so someone yeah. maybe with diabetes, they have their metformin. Someone else is supposed to have metformin as well, but a different strength. And they find that they're not taking it every day because they want to share it with someone else and neither are then doing as as well as they could. Um, and then the gen I'm saying, I'm sorry? Nothing. I just said, oh. or it should be doing. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Um, and then the dental aspect. Um, there are close to, um, I think it's 500 different types of bacteria that live in the mouth. And they, they help us to break down our food. But we do need to brush and clean and get, you know, all of the, the, um, the debris and everything from the little inner spaces between the teeth to help rinse the mouth and have a better and healthier gum and, um, and just good oral care. Um, so we want to avoid the, deep, uh, the sleep deprivation, um, the time off from work because of pain or, or lack of sleep, um, and improve social um, health itself with avoiding putting the hand up to the mouth or not being as in close proximity with someone and feeling kind of that lower self-esteem because of. So we can see how the dental sort of ties back into behavioral behavioral back into the physical aspect. So as uh, Isha, Aisha had mentioned in her slide, the bio, psycho, social, and that whole person care, just pulling it all together, tying it up, and um, we can do a better job. We learn from our previous day to do better the next day. So uh, next slide. So if the references are here, so if anyone would like to uh, do a deeper dive into some of the information that's pulled together, um, I'd be happy to share these references. And next slide. And thank you very much. Any questions? I have one. Yes. Uh, I didn't want to interrupt you during your presentation, but when you were speaking earlier about the uh, life expectancy differences. Yes. Uh, out of curiosity, uh, I know statistically, under normal circumstances, uh, women um, outlive men. Uh, mm -hmm. However, um, is that still the case uh, in a homeless uh, situation, um, in the kind of group that demographic that you were referring to uh, in the in the longevity piece of your of your presentation? Is that still the case that uh, uh, even though the man and the woman might be having the same health disparities, I mean, suffering the same health situations, uh, uh, social and medical situations, uh, is do you see in your uh, in any of your work that that's still the case that um, women do outlive men, uh, primarily because? Uh, uh, maybe because primarily, um, the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, there tends to also be in some communities uh, more programs for women than there are for men. You know, that's a really good question. Um, the information that I pulled did not distinguish between male and female. Um, anecdotally, I can say that there have been some patients that I've taken care of partners and the man has, is deceased and the woman has been uh, moved from another shelter and then found temporary and even some permanent housing. But I can't say for sure, but I did write that down, and I'd like to be able to get that information and give it back to you guys. I think that's, that's a really good question. Yeah. So I will look a little, I'll do a little deeper and get that back to you, okay? That would be great. Okay, cool. Thank you. Wanda, um, thank you so much for letting me fly on the wall and now ask a question <laughs> in the group. I appreciate
appreciated your presentation. I feel like it really kind of coupled well with what we were talking about earlier. I wonder if you experienced or in your research saw, um, you talked about these different groups um, and causes for homelessness in these different groups. Does that change as you look at, at sort of duration of homelessness? So people who have chronic homelessness over a long period of time, or is that made up of a different kind of drivers versus people who have shorter episodes of homelessness? Um, um, thank you so much, Lily. And, and it, I think our, our presentations did really um, come together quite nicely. Um, I have to say my the final dissertation was a comparison from 2016 to 2020. And earlier on, the, um, it, the reason or the cause for um, homelessness, uh, substance abuse was higher on the list. But I do have to wonder, mm -hmm. was that information gathered as, as nicely as we're really focusing a little bit better? So I don't know if it was what data was collected versus what people had expected, and, you know, and that effect of you're going to get the information that you want. <laughs> but um, I will have to look back and see what my sources were on that. And Another one to get back to. I can. I know your number. I know how to get in touch with you. But I think everyone <laughs> might might want to know that just uh, to do that comparison of what has shifted. Um, because I had got in that original dissertation, I went back a little bit further, even into uh, when people called you know the homeless hobos or whatever, and what the causes were then. Okay. So um, I'd like to. That might be a nice little graph to just put the different um, decades or, or situations or and the collection of data and what we looked at, how many uh, points of interest we looked at during that period of time. So more work to do. I love to dig. <laughs> the homeless count um, over the last 2015, 2017, 2019 has kind of addressed that issue with regard to chronic homelessness versus the literal homeless population. And then, you know, we of course have the doubled up population, which is even bigger than that. Mm -hmm. And the associations okay. between severe substance use and severe mental illness and chronic homelessness are mm -hmm. uh, lessening over time. Mm -hmm. So it's becoming more and more economic, even for people who have extended periods of homelessness. You're seeing more and more people with extended periods of homelessness who are working who have fewer chronic illnesses overall and who have fewer, you know, behavioral health issues overall than, you know, in 2019 in comparison to 2015. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, Damon. That's true. Even I know um, I live very close to a high school and a junior high, and both campuses um, have homeless families, children and the mother and father living out of their cars. And uh, it's not unusual, you know. Yeah. Yeah, the cost of living in California and especially in the Bay Area has really jumped. Oh yeah. Most definitely. Well, one of my um this is Mark again. One of my concerns uh about the homeless population is the possible um real increase that can occur uh when the uh when the eviction moratoriums end mm -hmm. yeah. and i'm really concerned about that and the impact it can have on whole families um 
some of them for the first time, possibly becoming homeless for the first time, and therefore not um, having or knowing necessarily from the street level how to where to begin to to navigate uh, homelessness, which it, which would for some people will be a completely new situation, and what impact that uh, will have on uh, on our future ability um, to basically provide services overall, and um, those are things that kind of keep me up at night too is is you know what is what is the picture going to look like you know another year from now um mm -hmm. uh, be, because of the economic aspect of what what has occurred because of covid and, and what what fallout may occur because of it okay. even, oh go ahead and uh, no i was going to say even beyond the year you're thinking even into the next generation as you mentioned, that uh, as uh, Loretta was that you, Loretta, that lives close to yes. a school. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And you think about how this impacts the children and how it's going to affect them into adulthood. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. So I was hoping, given the time, because I think this is really relevant to the opportunities and threats we face. So we really asked Wanda to focus on what are the needs of the population, kind of as a snapshot. But I wanted to update you all on the sort of strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats analysis. And I think this COVID economics is absolutely a threat, you know, to to our program. So we can move to that and and then try to um, try to you know entertain any great questions and also wrap up and give people their evenings back. Um, <laughs> so Brenda, you want to um, move forward in the slides? So the way I framed this was you all have seen this SWOT analysis already. So anything in black is what you saw before, and the things in blue are the updates over the last, you know, nine months or so. Um, so we can kind of just orient ourselves to, like, what's maybe changed about the strengths, weaknesses, and opportunities and threats from the perspective of our homeless health center leadership, so myself and Heather. Um, so, you know, in the category of strength, I think you guys have really been able to see over the last couple meetings, the second bullet, our established ancillary programs, you know, we really do have strengths in the bridge program, strengths in the chronic care management program. We have some other pockets of strengths in, in the system. Um, I did add on that second bullet, the, the housing is healthcare pilot that, um, that you all heard about today as really something that's been new since, you know, since that period of time, at least as being formally established. I think we were kind of doing some of the work of that in October 2020, but now it's a, it's a real thing. So I wanted to make sure we included it as a real thing that's a strength of, of, um, of what we're doing at Alameda Health System. And then um, the really important new strength is our homeless population registry, which I think for the first time has given us a much more comprehensive view of people experiencing homelessness across our system in the data. Um, so, um, so, um, Sorry, Lily just messaged me. It's complex care management, not chronic care management. So uh, thanks for that correction. Um, so yeah, that, that's something that's really been a tremendous change for us. Having the homeless population registry um, has really changed the way that we can think about and monitor and measure homelessness across the population in a, in a much more reliable way. You can go to the next slide, Brenda. Um, so, you know, the flip side of that is unreliable and inconsistent data really is no longer a weakness for us. Um, we, we have much better and more consistent data on housing status. I mean, I think we, you can always improve your data. That's sort of a, you know, truism. Um, but I think now 
really our ability to use the data we have is where the challenge is, much more so than like getting the data to any place where it's, it's helping us orient at all. So I've, I've removed this as something that we consider a weakness um, of our program now. I think we still have these barriers to engagement that you heard about in both presentations. Um, we still have some inconsistencies across our system and our approach to housing. I think you've really heard about some great work that complex care management and care transitions are doing to, um, to bring some more consistency um, to, um, to how we address housing, but I think there's a long way to go there internally. And then, um, you know, really something that's foundational to some of these funding questions is what are our opportunities to maximize the billing we do at federally qualified health center rates across our health center? And I think we really still have yet to fully dig into that. You know, our dental services, for example, some of our specialty services, we're really missing opportunities that would allow us to support some of the work that's most important for us to do. And, and I think that's a weakness that we have yet to present you all more comprehensive data about and talk about, but we're hoping it's gonna be a focus of our August meeting. Um, Next slide on the opportunity side. Um, so, um, you know, we talked we talked in the past about the creation of our health equity, diversity, and inclusion initiative. I think that's still a big opportunity for us to engage our leadership. You know, we have, um, I think, almost all of the chief chief the C suite is engaged in that initiative on the steering committee. Several board members are really engaged with that initiative. Um, so it's definitely a chance to, to kind of put the spotlight on the type of work that we're doing and, and drive some of this work that we're doing. EPIC, I think, remains a really big opportunity. I think so much has improved. You know, it, it can be a day-to-day -day headache for sure as a leader, um, but it, when I step back and think about what it was like practicing in this system, you know, you know, three months before EPIC compared to what it's like now, I mean, it is just night and day, the access to information, the ability to mm -hmm. collaborate with colleagues. And I think there's a lot more that we can do with EPIC, particularly if we tailor it, you know, to um, the Enhanced Care Management Program, for example, you know, as we're starting to, to leverage it as an integration tool across our system. Um, and then our community-wide, you know, community health record, Care Connect, is a, still an opportunity for us to, to think about as part of our strategic mm -hmm. planning process. And what I added here was that our passage of Measure W as a county adds 100 million plus to housing and services for people experiencing homelessness. And I think we have yet to really fully understand the mechanics of that program, how much is going to housing versus services, you know, um, mm -hmm. but um, it clearly is a big revenue opportunity that, that we need to think about in our strategic planning process that's new and, and wasn't, you know, wasn't part of the mix before election day last year. Um, I'm, I'll go to threats and then we can pause for any discussion after the um, entire section. So, um, I did, um, I did um, cross out reduction in public safety net budgets. I think we're, you know, keeping up with the need is still a problem. So pound for pound budget definitely is still an issue. We have a lot more needs and we have about the same budget. But we, we really were at some point last year worried about there being cuts um, and the election of Biden and, the, you know, the passage of, of more, um, uh, federal funding has really made the the local um, governments whole in our public safety net uh, that, that form our public safety net budget for now, and so that really isn't a, a near term threat at least for us. Um, I think mm -hmm. the increasing burden of homelessness, you know, both prior to the COVID nineteen pandemic and then, as Mark mm -hmm. pointed out, because of the COVID nineteen pandemic, is certainly a threat for us. And so I may add that in blue here. Um, just to, to underscore Mark's point. And then I think, you know, for us, 
I don't know. It, it could be an opportunity. I classify it as a threat because I think it's um, right now it's a lot to deal with for us. The, the change in governance, the change in leadership. You know, we don't really know um, how our direction in this institution will be set in the future. Um, who will be setting it? Um, and you know, we we have had high turnover and loss of executive leaders, and you know. You can see the list there, including including our yeah. chief administrative officer for ambulatory. And so I think just that amount of of turnover is, is has to be a threat to you know developing a long term strategy and, and pursuing mm -hmm. it. I think there are elements of it that are an opportunity for us to you know to advance consumer leadership in the process, um, as I think you know Loretta and Mark have have been doing um, as our ad hoc committee. Um, but um, but that's the that's the overview there, and maybe I'll just pause there for any discussion or or comments on the updated SWOT analysis. Well, um, this is Mark again. Um, I, I, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not able to see the slides at the moment. Uh, hopefully, uh, that's going to change in the near future. Um, but um, I, I I do think. Uh, I do think that there are still, um, irrespective of some of the threats that uh, that we could see possibly happening, uh, that there's also uh, there's also opportunity, and uh, I just think it's important for us to uh, to, to to maximize uh, those opportunities when we have them, uh, and and to be able to uh, recognize them when we do. Um, and that in itself, I think, will uh, will certainly help. But it's something that we have to be uh, uh, consistently watching and looking for at, at every turn. Yeah, and I'm really grateful to have you and Loretta really, really doing that because um, I think that's that's one of the. I agree with you completely. You know, if my thinking is that um, we could use more advocates for the patients and for the people. For example, um, yes, this eviction moratorium is going to uh, end soon, and yes, there are a lot of people that have not been able to pay their rent. However, the flip side of that is that there's tons of money that's been set aside to help these families, but a lot of them don't know a thing about it whether it be a language barrier or whether it just be, it could be a lot of different things, you know. And um, I think I personally like to advocate for the, the patients and the, the people that I see suffering. I'll do my best, you know, to find some type of help for them. And I think, um, I think that's going to be a, a very critical, um, critical thing for all of us to think about. Because no one knows everything, right? <laughs> we all have our little specialties, and uh, you have to really rely on that. That's right. Um, to expound on what she, uh, what Loretta just said, uh, I think uh, what's also important, and I, 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 it might sound very small, but I think it really makes a difference. I think when. Uh, um, pe people in the organization uh, are working together, and as you were saying, not everybody knows everything. I think it's important for us to be, 
I think uh, I think everybody who's involved in this kind of work uh, needs to be feel free to uh, mm-hmm. ask questions. <laughs> uh, sometimes uh, we don't know the answer to something, and sometimes we're reticent to ask questions because we think it reflects on our. Um, it personally reflects on us that we don't know something, but uh, yeah. but the fact of the matter is uh, you you uh, you don't know what you don't know, and it's important for you to ask questions, and I think uh, that's important um, for every person um, in every program uh, um, in the kind of work we do. Mm-hmm. That if you don't know something, um, feel free to ask. Feel free to ask and, and share information and be open to sharing information uh, whenever possible. I would like to make a comment. This is B. Uh, I've enjoyed the presentations very much, but I'm not certain. Well, I guess what I want to know is with the expansion of money in our community, and I don't really know all the details of what is going to be available with with Medicare now in the state of California, it's my understanding it might be different from other states because we have more money mm-hmm. and we can put more money into housing and medical care. I think probably with more advocates and more opportunities available for people, will there be people that will be considered for employment that are homeless? Would the agencies consider them
Um, you can just see the tremendous amount of transition that's happening in the program really over the last few months. So, you know, within between March and May, we started up a new program for vaccination. And then the program went from, you know, 200 vaccinations, to 22 vaccinations. And then we decided, well, you know, the count that we can give this back to the county to do fully. Um, and so we closed down the program. And then you can see now there's this four slightly greenish dot in June where we've really started providing dental care that's going to increase in, in July. So I really just, you know, um, I think this is a good visual representation of all the transitioning transition that's happening in mobile health, you know, under the same budget with the same staffing. And I, again, I think we've talked to you all about how we're doing pilot programs to help us think through and learn things that we can then bring back um, you know, as considerations for larger strategic decisions that we, we absolutely need the co-applicant co board to guide us in making. Um, but that's one thing I just wanted to highlight. And then I think the other thing under the quality tab is, you know, we're, we're moving toward ways to leverage the registry with next level data. So we're trying to figure out how do we leverage the data to better understand what's happening with self-pay? How do we leverage the data, um, to really um, know at a more granular level, not just are, were people homeless in the last 12 months or not, which is kind of what our registry tells us now, but what are they at this mm -hmm. moment in time, which is part of what we're doing, you know, by, by deepening the work with our patient services representatives. Um, so that's the other thing I would just want to highlight in the quality area. There's not many changes in the other areas, you know, leadership and advocacy, Heather and I remain stretched pretty thin. Um, oh, our chief medical officer, um, as you may have seen on your email, has submitted his resignation um, effective in August um, for another yes. change that we announced. So you all have met Dr. Jamaluddin, Dr. Kay in this meeting. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So unfortunately, he's he's um, resigned. So that's maybe the other yeah. highlight that's in that's in this report. Um, but if there are any questions, I'm happy to take them. Mm. Um, is um, has has um, will a, a search begin uh, immediately on? Uh, on a new CMO? Uh, you know, we still have an interim chief executive officer. Um, so um, there was no announcement with regard to the search. Um, and I, I'm not aware of any official communication about this search uh, for a chief medical officer. Um, you know, I, I think it would be it would be challenging to hire a chief medical officer without the chief medical officer knowing that the chief executive officer is going to be the chief executive officer. So, um, you know, we're we're at a point where we have a lot of interim roles, and I think we're gonna we're gonna be um, we're gonna be functioning in interim roles for a while as um, our board of trustees both participates in a process to design okay. governance for the future and governs us in the short term and decides whether they want to you know how quickly they want to hire a permanent CEO and et cetera. Um, so, I, yeah, there, there hasn't been an announcement about that, and that's my commentary about that, is I, I think, you know, we're going to be continuing to, to, to work with interim roles. That said, a lot of our interim roles are people who know the system well, people who've been in it before, both at the executive level and here in ambulatory, and we, we still do have, you know, a, a lot of talent um, inside the organization. All right, if there's no more questions, I'm happy to close this um, item out, Madam Chair. Okay, and um, 
Is there anyone from the public that would like to make a comment? I don't think we have anyone. I didn't see any new ones. Okay, then. Uh, Co-applicant board members, anyone have final comments, questions? Anything they want to say before we adjourn? Um, well, I have a question. I don't know if this is, uh, if anyone knows any answer, but um, what do we know what the plan is in terms of our meetings with uh, virtual meetings versus coming back in person eventually? That's a good question. I don't know. I'm interested in if Kayla knows anything about, you know, what's, what's happening in terms of uh, state law around that. Uh, I don't have an update for you, but I can look into that and provide it next time. Awesome. Well, and um, uh, Damon, um, if you get a chance, uh, give me a call. Will do. Okay. Okay. Uh, I guess we can adjourn now. The time is 8.03, and we are now adjourned. Thank you, everybody that participated. That was a wonderful presentation. It really was. It really it just, was. This was a wonderful, wonderful Wonderful meeting. Yeah. It was. It really was. Um, um, <laughs> we actually need to make a motion to adjourn. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No problem. Thank you. Uh, I'd like I'll to make, make a, a motion, motion to, to adjourn the meeting. Okay. <laughs> I second the motion. Okay. We are now adjourned. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Have a great And Wanda, I'm so glad I got this.